Guardian Unlimited. Order. Questions to the Prime Minister. Charlotte Atkins. Number one, Mr. Speaker. Mr. Speaker, so this morning I have meetings with ministerial colleagues and others in addition to my duties in the House. I will have further such meetings later today. My local health staff have ensured that all cancer patients are seen within two weeks, and 97 per cent are treated within the target 62 days. Yeah. Will the Prime Minister therefore guarantee that these health staff receive the training, the pay, and the pensions they deserve, unlike the party opposite, Sorry, the question was already up until then. So. <laughs> um, Mr. Speaker, first of all, I would like to congratulate the staff um, in my honourable friend's constituency for having met the target. Of course, when we came to office, only round about 60% of cancer patients were seen by a specialist within two weeks. Um, that figure is now 99.9% for the whole of the country. Uh, there are now, for the whole of the country, 97% of cancer patients are then treated within the 62 days, 100% in her own area. And this is why it is important that we keep these national standards and targets for things like cancer and cardiac care so that we make sure that we continue with a record that in cancer alone has saved over 50,000 lives since 1997. And for all of these targets, there is a patient that is being helped to get care in circumstances where a few years ago they weren't getting that care. David Cameron. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Last week, the Chief of the General Staff said on Iraq, the original intention was that we put in place a liberal democracy. I don't think we're going to do that. I think we should aim for a lower ambition. The Prime Minister has never said that. So is that now the government's policy? No, our policy remains to make sure that Iraq uh, continues as a democracy. We have a democracy in Iraq for the first time in that country's history. Um, 70% of the people came out and voted in the election. That is an extraordinary achievement, despite all the terrorism and intimidation. And what's more, they voted for a non-sectarian government in which the Sunnis and the Shias and the Kurds all work together. And I believe that the maintenance of democracy is absolutely essential for us in Iraq and in Afghanistan. I know it's difficult, but our task is to stand with the moderates in those countries against the extremists. We all support the elected government of Iraq, and we all want to get the job done. But when the Prime Minister says we're going to get the job done, we need to know what he means. It's no use having him say one thing and the Chief of the General Staff say another thing. Let's, let's look at something else the Chief of the General Staff said on the Today programme. He said this, The point that I'm trying to make is that the mere fact we're in some places, our presence there exacerbates violence. Again, this is something the Prime Minister has never said. Is that now his view? Mr Speaker, it is our policy to withdraw progressively from Iraq as the Iraqi forces are capable of taking on the security task. 
That is why it is important when we are able to hand over to them that we do so. Otherwise, of course, we are a provocation rather than a help to them. That is why earlier in this year we ceded control of the Al-Mutana province. There are now 5,000 Iraqi forces in there doing that job. We're actually just withdrawing now, or the Italians are, almost 3,000 forces from the Daikar province. There, the Iraqis again will come in and do the job. We have already reduced our forces significantly over the past few years, but what we're doing, for example, in Basra at the moment, where we're working with the Iraqi forces to go through part by part of Basra, making sure that we clean out the militia, put in place proper Iraqi security forces, do the reconstruction, that is vital work. And I do not want to either dismay our allies or hearten our enemies by suggesting we will do anything else other than stay until the job is done. And I believe it has been a strength that there's been a bipartisan policy on this, and I hope that is maintained. My party supports what the troops are doing in Iraq. Yes! We have never backed some premature timetable for withdrawal, but we want the Prime Minister to give frank and candid answers about the situation in Iraq. The problem is, we've got a situation where the picture on the ground is difficult and unstable, but the message being given to the British people is quite different. Will the Prime Minister give a guarantee that when it comes to our objectives in Iraq, to our troop numbers in Iraq, and to the progress we are making? Uh, uh, even though you're a distance away, Mr. Austin, I can hear you and I can see you. And I'll ask you to leave the chamber if you carry on like that. We'll have to get used to the Chancellor's boot boy shouting in Prime Minister's questions, I suspect. When it comes to our objectives in Iraq, troop numbers in Iraq, and progress we're making, will he give a guarantee of frank, candid and honest answers from the dispatch box in the House of Commons? I hope I have just explained very clearly what our strategy is. It is to withdraw progressively as the Iraqi forces build up their capability. For example, now down in the south of Iraq, for the first time, we have 10,000 Iraqi troops who are actually trained to the fullest extent, who are very capable troops, actually doing an excellent job uh, under the, the, the command of the Iraqi army. And yes, of course it is. As we're able to cede control, we do so. But to withdraw prematurely before the job is done would be disastrous. And can I just, because it might help to explain this, there is some sense, uh, because of the discussion in the past few days, obviously, as if we have been sitting here in government saying there is no way that we're going to withdraw, we're going to stay there uh, forever. That has never been our case. If I can just quote to him what I said in front of the Liaison Committee just a few months ago. I said, I suspect over the next 18 months there will obviously be opportunities to draw down significant numbers of British troops because the capacity of the Iraqi forces will build up. I said it then, I say it now. General Casey himself in charge of the whole of the multinational force in Iraq said back in August, I don't have a date, but I can see over the next 12 to 18 months the Iraqi security forces progressing to a point where they can take on the security responsibilities for the country. That is the policy of ourselves, our allies, not just America, but the other 20 or so countries there. And it's important that we send out the signal to these people who are trying... Yeah.
who are trying to wreck the chances of Iraqi democracy by killing innocent people, the self-same extremism that threatens our troops and Afghan civilians, the terrorism that is there in countries around the world, the message that should go out from us and from this country is not just one of enormous pride in our troops, which we should have, but also that the policy of standing up and fighting these extremists abroad and at home is the right one and there will be no quarter given to those who oppose us. David Cheater. Mr. Speaker, recently the British nuclear group has been fined half a million pounds for pleading guilty to the leak of 80,000 litres of spent nuclear fuel at Sellafield. British Energy has seen 25% of its share price wiped out after admitting to cracks in the boilers at Hunterston B and Hinkley Point and underground leaks at Hartlepool. Would my right honourable friend confirm that if after all this someone does come forward with a plan for a new fleet of nuclear power stations, the government's policy remains that there will be no further subsidy from the taxpayer. Our policy remains exactly as is and it's important that it does so. Look, I mean, the point that my honourable friend uh, makes, however, is a, is a perfectly good point. There are all these issues to do with, with replacing the existing uh, generation of nuclear power stations. But the reason why it's on the agenda, and we could tell this very clearly from uh, the launch early in the week of the, of the Norwegian-British pipeline, the fact is, over these next few years, this country will go from being 80 to 90 percent self-sufficient in oil and gas to importing 80 to 90 percent. Those are fossil fuels, obviously. There is a danger that we end up in a situation where we become increasingly dependent on um, imported supplies of energy, and that's why I think it's right that we replace the existing nuclear power stations. But the points that he raises, of course, are all points that have to be taken into consideration. St. Mingus Campbell. I can't help making the observation that complaints about the government's policy over Iraq would be more acceptable from those who'd opposed the policy in the first place. But what the Prime Minister said in his answers gives an impression which is not borne out by events on the ground. The United Nations calculates that there are 3,000 Iraqi civilians being killed every month. In those circumstances, how can the Prime Minister maintain, as General Dannett told us, that our presence is not exacerbating the security situation? It is correct that there are innocent civilians dying in Iraq. That is true. They are not being killed by British soldiers. They are being killed by terrorists and those from the outside who are supporting them in defiance of the United Nations resolution that says the future of Iraq should be determined democratically by the Iraqi people. And whatever disagreement people had with the original decision on Iraq, I would have thought we should all support now the United Nations position, the Iraqi government position, which is to say we stand up against the extremists and in favour of the Democrats. But we are surely entitled to question the strategy to which the government is committed. And it's clear, is it not, that the opinions uh, expressed by General Dannett, by Brigadier Butler, by Senator John Warner, and now by James Baker, only lead to one conclusion, and that is that the government's strategy has failed. And in those circumstances, the choice is stark. Change the strategy or else get out. I, I suspect uh, 
the right honourable gentleman believes we should simply leave Iraq. I think that that would be a mistake. But let me explain to him again why it is important to understand that if we desert the Iraqi government now, at the very time when they are building up the forces um, so that the Iraqi security forces can take over security, it would be a gross dereliction of our duty to them. And incidentally, the reason for the mission that we are doing in Basra as we speak uh, where we have gone through four areas of Basra already. There are some 16 areas that, that uh, are part of this process. The work that is being done by British soldiers alongside Iraqi forces is absolutely vital in restoring proper law and order to that city. If we got out now, when the job wasn't done, and simply deserted the situation, what good would that do other than to make sure that those people that support these extremists right round the world would gain heart from it? And that's why I say to him, of course he should debate the strategy. We should all debate the strategy. But the strategy is very clear. Progressively to withdraw as the Iraqi capability is there and do not desert the Democrats, support them. When Prosser, my, does my right honourable friend recall the days when Dover was suffering great difficulties coping with large numbers of illegal immigrants and asylum seekers. Does he recall the setting up of an induction centre and a detention centre in the town? And does he recall writing to my constituents and saying, I am well aware of the strain that has been put on Dover and how well the town has dealt with it. I also accept that Dover has suffered an unfair burden. Mr Speaker, with the Home Office now threatening to burden us with an open prison in the most inappropriate site in the land, can you understand why Dover feels dumped upon and will you meet with me to talk about my grave concerns? Um, I recall uh, before when my honourable friend represented so strongly the issues in relation to migration in Dover um, and we were able to deal with that problem. I'm very happy to meet with him and try and deal with the problem he now has. I entirely understand the local feelings are strong. I know he's met already with the Home Secretary and I'm sure I will be uh, very happy to meet with him and discuss it. Jeffrey M. Donaldson. The Prime Minister will be aware of the need to ensure that there is adequate support and recognition for the innocent victims of terrorist violence in Northern Ireland as we seek to move forward. The Interim Victims Commissioner, Bertha McDougall, who is doing an excellent work, has recently published a report which indicates the need to secure long-term funding for the victims sector. Will the Prime Minister give a commitment to provide that long-term funding for those who have suffered so much? Yes, I think I, I can give that commitment to uh, the Honourable Gentleman. And let me just point out that we've committed some £38 million to victims groups since 1998. The current spending is at £5 million a year. I, I am aware of the excellent work that's being done by Bertha McDoodle um, as the Commissioner. I look forward to her final report. Um, we will look positively at her recommendations for future funding and her suggestions for spending the money more effectively. I'd also like to thank the Honourable Gentleman and his colleagues for the very constructive role they played in the talks in St Andrews um, last week, and I hope very much uh, that the shared future I talked about from this dispatch box last week um, is somewhat further advanced now. And I hope we can all continue to work closely to make sure that the institutions get back up and running in Northern Ireland and the future for Northern Ireland is secure. Keith Barge. Last Thursday, the British Board of Film Classification gave a 15 certificate to a video game formerly called Bully. This game contains scenes of violence, including players terrorising teachers and students, teachers being headbutted, and the aggressive use of baseball bats. Curries have banned this game. 
given the link between uh, video games and their propensity to encourage violence that has been demonstrated in some research, will the Prime Minister convene a meeting of the stakeholders, including the industry and parents' groups, to discuss this issue? And will he accept this is not about adult censorship, this is about protecting our children? First of all, can I praise my right honourable friend for um, his work in raising awareness of this issue? Um, I haven't seen the game myself, but I know that the, uh, the Minister... The Minister for Creative Industries um, and also uh, uh, the Minister for Creative Industries and also the Minister responsible for the industry are very happy uh, to meet with him and stakeholders to discuss it. It's obviously an important issue. I know there's a lot of concern about it. It is, um, I think, right to say that the video games industry, or certainly a very substantial section of it, have made significant strides and advances over the past few years, but he's quite right. It's important that's maintained. David Cameron. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Today, thousands of postmasters and postmistresses are coming to London. Will the Prime Minister explain why we were promised a one-stop shop for government services, yet it was never introduced? We were promised a post office card account that was introduced but now is under threat, and why the option of letting sub-post offices compete in new areas was never seriously looked at. Will the Prime Minister guarantee that all of these things will be looked at properly and urgently in the government's review? We can certainly look at all the options, and we will and we should, but I hope he is, is, is not going to be in a position of saying to post offices that he's going to spend even more money in government subsidy of post offices than we're doing. I mean, I might just point out, when we came to office, there was nothing really being done in order to support uh, those rural post offices. We've now spent... Well, let me just point out the facts, and then I'll explain what the difficulty is. We've spent somewhere in the region of £2 billion. We're currently subsidising them to £150 million a year. I totally understand why it's of concern to people. Of course it is. But the reason there is a problem is that more and more people are using bank accounts rather than the post office. And it is important, therefore, to realise that there is a process of change that any government would have to handle in this situation. So, yes, of course we will look at all the options, but what we won't be able to do is to say there is even more subsidy available than the money we're already putting in. But the fact is, if decisions aren't taken urgently, there will be no post office network left to protect. Will, will, the Prime Minister, will the Prime Minister accept that four million people have card accounts, they value those card accounts, and those card accounts are a vital income stream for the post office? Doesn't he understand that scrapping them could be the last and fatal blow to the post office network? So will the Prime Minister review this policy and keep the post office card account? debating the card account and, and making a consideration of it. But it's true to say, I have to tell the Honourable Gentleman, that some 98% of pensioners, people who are becoming pensioners today, choose payment into a bank account. And the, 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 the desire for the pocket card an account is actually declining. And I'm afraid it, on any basis there is a limit to the amount of money that we can put in. And I do simply say this to him, um, because that is particularly so in, on a day when apparently his, his, his Shadow Chancellor is about to promise £4.7 billion worth of stamp duty tax cuts on share dealing. He cannot go and promise... He cannot, he cannot promise that he's going to spend more money on the health service, more money on defence, more money on post offices, more money on rural services, and then promise, on the other hand, tax cuts that simply cannot be affordable. 
Michael J. Foster. Thousands more, thousands more criminals have been convicted as a result of the provisions of the 2003 Criminal Justice Act, um, allowing police to take DNA of suspects. Um, a measure, Mr. Speaker, that the other side opposed. Um, would, would my right honourable friend agree, or indeed reject, any calls for dumbing down or indeed uh, blunting this important instrument in the fight against crime? Yeah. My honourable friend makes a very important point about the DNA uh, database because the police are now matching uh, something like 3,000 offences a month. There are literally hundreds of murders, manslaughter, um, rapes, uh, other serious offences that have been solved as a result of the DNA database. And it's not simply the party opposite we're, we're opposed to it on the, on the basis it transgressed people's civil liberties. It's important we now build that DNA database because it's a vital way in the modern world of fighting crime. And if people are serious about fighting crime, they can't allege that we're not doing enough and then oppose the very measures necessary to do it. Will the uh, Prime Minister join me in praising the UK's air ambulances, which help thousands of patients and save hundreds of lives? Uh, does he realise that this service survives entirely on voluntary donations? And indeed, unless we find a sponsor, the Mid Wales helicopter will be withdrawn for the winter. Uh, is he aware that all air ambulances are barred from applying for big lottery funds? And could I ask the Prime Minister to facilitate a meeting to resolve what amounts to an anomaly? so that they can apply to the fund to upgrade their aircraft and continue their life-saving services. Yeah. Well, I'm certainly happy to facilitate such a meeting with uh, the, the Minister who is responsible for air ambulances. I would pay tribute, of course, to the work that they do. Um, for the last four years or so, the NHS has reduced the burden on all air ambulance charities by meeting the cost of the paramedic who staff these air ambulances. I have to say, um, I'm not actually aware of any bar to the air ambulance services applying for funding, but I'm perfectly um, happy that that issue is discussed. And, of course, the lottery has awarded some £300,000 um, uh, over the past years to Mountain Rescue, for example, and, and other services. But I totally understand what he's saying. It's obviously important we do our best for air ambulance services. And if he meets the minister, I will look closely at the outcome of that meeting myself. Jeff Ennis. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Is the Prime Minister aware of the five good GCSE pass rates for Willigarth High School in Grimethorpe, one of the most deprived parts in my constituency, on whose governing body I have served since 1979? Yeah. The pass rate last year was 38%, this year it's 67%. Yeah. Furthermore, for the boys, it's gone up from 34% last year to 73%. Yeah. Is this yet further evidence of what the Prime Minister meant when he said that this government is making education its top priority? Right. Well, uh, strangely enough, strangely enough, I am actually aware of the results in Grimethorpe. <laughs> Um, and they are excellent results. I congratulate uh, the, the schools, all the schools in my honourable friend's constituency and also uh, the local authority in Barnsley that have done such a superb job. But that is repeated right round the country. 
uh, where there, there are the best ever school results and where we have moved from a situation where literally there were many authorities who had um, averages of five good GCSEs of 30% or lower to making sure that all of them now are over 40% and that there are real improvements happening in our schools up and down this country. It's a wonderful tribute to the teachers, the staff, to the pupils and parents, but also to the record investment and reform that this government has put in. Peter Vigors. When other nations expose their servicemen and women to injury, they're given the best possible medical treatment, often in military hospitals, whereas ours are handed over to the National Health Service. Does the Prime, Does the Prime Minister recognise that the move of defence medical services to Birmingham isn't working and won't work, and will he yield to overwhelming pressure that the only military hospital we have has a hospital in Gosport should be retained? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I simply don't agree with the Honourable Gentleman at all. And first of all, I, I pay tribute to the work that's done by uh, the Medical Defence Services. I would also pay tribute to the work the NHS is doing. Yeah. Those soldiers that are injured. I also think, since there has been uh, a lot of discussion about Selly Oak Hospital in the news in the past few days, I should at least um, give them the chance to respond that they have issued a, a statement. I don't think it's been particularly covered, but I would like just to quote from two parts of it. They say, in the main, the articles in the, the uh, media are inaccurate, unbalanced, ill informed, and unsubstantiated. Not exactly surprising. Um, but they say, they go on to say, on no occasion has the Trust been approached to comment on any of the allegations. There have been reports of an alleged Muslim visitor verbally abusing a paratrooper at Selly Oak Hospital. Neither the Trust nor the Ministry of Defence has any formal or anecdotal reports or evidence that this alleged incident took place. They then go on to say that, that the patients are getting an excellent standard of care there and there are no complaints either from the patients themselves or from those that are charged with looking after them. Now, I have said, and I believe it's right, that it is important that our soldiers, particularly those that are wounded in battle, are looked after to the best possible extent and that the use that is made of NHS specialist services is important in that, but they should be in an environment in which they feel comfortable. We will look to make sure that that is the case, but I think it would be quite, quite wrong of people to criticise the National Health Service and the way that they've looked after these people, because I know the staff there are doing their level best in difficult circumstances. Andrew Love. Is my right honourable friend aware that this year World League table for foreign investment, Britain has come at the top? Not, not only has foreign investment been greater in Britain than in China, but greater in Britain than in the United States. And indeed, if you combine China and the United States, Britain's foreign investment has been even greater this year in this country. Does this show that uh, the business community, the international business community, has real confidence in the strength of the British economy, unlike the spokesman for the opposition. Yeah. Well, my honourable friend is, of course, absolutely right to say that the, the latest figures show that some £85 billion worth of direct foreign investment came into Britain last year, making it the most popular destination in the world, ahead of both the United States and China. We've had the strongest economic growth, low inflation, um, high employment, low unemployment. The OECD has said macroeconomic performance in Britain over the last decade has been a paragon of stability. That is a Labour government delivering a strong economy after the years of boom and bust and depression under the Tories. Greg Mulholland. 
Speaker, the Prime Minister will be aware of the case of the Leeds man Mirza Tahir Hussain, who is currently to be executed in Pakistan on the 1st of November following uh, a legal process that has, can only be described as deeply flawed. He will also be aware of the proposed royal visit of Prince Charles and the Duchess of Cornwall to be in Pakistan at the same time. Does he agree with me that the royal visit should not go ahead if the Pakistani authorities intend to carry out this gross miscarriage of justice? And will he also tell the House what he intends to do before that time to persuade President Musharraf to use the powers he has to overturn and resolve this difficult situation? Yeah. Uh, well, first of all, I, I won't uh, comment, if he, forgive me, on the, the royal visit, but I will say this about um, the, the, the particular case. We have raised this constantly with the Pakistani authorities. I raised it personally with President Musharraf when he was here uh, a couple of weeks ago. Um, I hope, even at this stage, um, that there is an intervention to ensure this does not take place. Um, I think it would be very serious if it, if it does. Uh, there is a limit to what the President can do, but I hope that he can use the powers that he has, and we will continue to make representations uh, right up until the last moment. I can assure uh, the Honourable Gentleman of that, because it is a case we have raised on many, many occasions for all the reasons that are well known. Ben Chapman. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, given its potential to engage young people in politics, uh, to teach respect and responsibility in communities and societies, and to tackle disengagement and antisocial behaviour, does my right honourable friend share my considerable disappointment at Ofsted's reporting of poor standards of teaching in citizenship, and would he see that their recommendations are impl implemented comprehensively and swiftly? Yeah. Um, I think the, the point that my honourable friend makes is absolutely right, and we will, will uh, look at those recommendations, are looking at them very carefully, and, and obviously will want to implement them. I mean, citizenship is relatively new, just coming in to the curriculum over the past uh, few years, but he's right in stressing its importance, and in view of the debates that are happening at, uh, at the moment about how people integrate better into our society, become more responsible citizens, I think citizenship has an absolutely central part uh, in the teaching in school, and it's important that we improve the quality of it and make sure that where classes are inadequate, that they are substantially improved. Mr Speaker, now that the uh, National Audit Office has laid bare the chaos of the Rural Payments Agency and the potential fine of £141 million by the European Union because of those inaccuracies, plus the fact that the then Secretary of State was warned in June 2005 that the project was off course and yet did nothing, what sort of government is it that we have that keeps the then Chief Executive on full pay six months after he was sacked and promotes the responsible minister to foreign secretary? Yeah. Well, first of all, as we've said on many occasions, we are sorry for the delays that there have been. Uh, there are now 97% of farmers have received full or partial payments. The Rural Payments Agency are in contact with the remaining high-value cases and are working to pay the remaining claims as soon as possible. Lynn Jones. In June, my right honourable friend told me that the government needs to do more on social housing. Yet in the forthcoming uh, two years, Birmingham City has been allocated less money so far for new social housing than in the previous two years. What sense does it make for uh, housing benefit to be paying for the last 20 months £635 a month for Mr and Mrs Gargan in my constituency and their five children 
to be accommodated in inadequate temporary accommodation when had we had a decent council house building programme, the rent would have been less than half the amount. I mean, the point that uh, my friend makes I totally understand, but it's just worth pointing out that we have substantially increased the level of investment in social housing. It's not all provided in the traditional way, but we will continue to do that. And it's only as a result of this government, when we came to office, actually putting the money into social housing that, for example, many elderly people who used to... Well, they used to have... There was no support for elderly people in social housing before this government came to power. We're spending now about £2 billion on it, and that is investment this government has put into social housing and the party opposite voted against. Order. Guardian Unlimited.